Hello everyone and welcome to the Gibbs Spotlight. Today you are going to hear Gibbs College Dean Hans Butzer and Karen Renfro of the OU Foundation speak with the University of Oklahoma alum Raymond Harris. They sat down with Raymond to learn more about his career in architecture along with his business and mentorship activities in retirement. So, uh, Ray, uh, again, thanks so much for making time. Um, and, you know, so much of uh, this conversation is born out of the exciting conversation that we had with you in early December at your office in Dallas. And um, we it was it was cool to be up on that upper floor, you know, in your office, looking down, you know, over Dallas and the surrounding areas, because it kind of invited a, a level of reflection. And so I, I think our students and, and uh, other readers you know, would love to know more about, you know, starting with where are you now in your life? You know, whether it's personally you want to share, certainly professional. Today, today I'm retired officially as a practitioner. I spent, I'd been registered for 40 years. Uh, By the time I retired, I owned a firm uh, for 37 of those years. Um, During the, the latter part of those years, I started a leadership transition process, selling the firm to younger partners. And that that was about a 10-year process of of selling the firm. But during that time, I stayed with them. And so today, I'm officially out of the firm. Uh, The firm uh, grew to be a large firm. We were an average of about 70 to 72 people for 15 years in the middle of that time fluctuated down to 65, um, obviously started out as a small firm. But our firm sold to a a large national firm out of Kansas City, BRR, and uh, they were good friends of mine, and we had a very close relationship. They operated their firm very similar to the way we operated ours. We helped each other out a lot uh, over a 25-year period, and so our firms just merged, and uh, we became the, the branch office in Dallas of BRR, which has uh, well over 10 national offices. So I and don't uh, go down to the office anymore. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So so uh, so what is your typical day looking like nowadays? Well, I, I have an office where you visited and I look at myself as doing a, a number of things. And they started while I was still heavy into practice. I would classify myself as a venture capitalist and what I say, venture capital in God's kingdom. I'm an author. I've written numerous books uh, that have been published. I'm an executive movie and music producer. And then I build economic engines through young men and women to affect culture, the economy uh, in a positive way. And so... You know, I'm, I would, ca- uh, most people just say he in, he's an investor and that's really what I am. I'm an investor, but I have so many other things I do. I uh, spend a good part of my uh, time mentoring young guys and, and uh, I usually have three to five lunches a week uh, with young men. Uh, some I run with early in the mornings, others I have lunch or coffee with. Um, and I spend a good bit of time with uh, ministry and not-for-profit leaders because uh, honestly, it's a pretty lonely spot to be at the top and they don't have anyone they can talk to. So mm-hmm. causes or things I'm interested in, I'll spend time with them. And then another aspect is Mary Dell and I have a foundation and we give to not-for-profit organizations through that not-for-profit uh, foundation that we established alongside investing in for-profit businesses that actually do pretty much the same thing. So overseas, most of our work is for-profit, even though uh, we, don't, we don't bring any profit you know, home, mm-hmm. it's still for-profit businesses. Yeah. So, so it's fair to say that you invest in people and in businesses. Yeah. I call them economic engines. I, I like that term yeah. because uh, you can give people money and they'll spend it. You can invest in businesses and it might work. But if you can actually develop a, a business that has a flywheel, then it can it can replicate and increase. And um, I think I shared with you guys a little bit of, of some of those in our office. And 
it's exciting to see how things can grow if you get in on the the, the ground level and ignite the right people. Um, so was there something uh, like from your childhood that you could point to that kind of started to shape uh, the path that led you to where you are today? Or like, how, how you know, how did well, you get I, to the point where you have this mind frame? <laughs> My mom apologizes because she dropped me <laughs> when I was little, <laughs> dropped me on my head. <clears throat> we always laugh about that. Uh, <laughs> well, I, uh, I had a, a very godly grandmother and grandfather, and they were uh, actually wealthy people, but they knew how to use their wealth to help others. And so through... Uh, really observing my grandfather as a very young boy. I lived with him for a number of years uh, while my mother was divorced. We, we both lived with our, our, my grandparents and they had a heavy influence uh, on goodness, uh, helping others, making money, using it not for themselves necessarily. But uh, really I would say my grandmother actually helped me decide to go to architecture school. My dad was a physician. My grandfather was a physician on the other side. I was supposed to be a physician. So I came to OU in pre-med and did real well my freshman year, but I absolutely did not enjoy it. So I uh, walked over to the architecture school. And that was primarily because that's what I wanted to do. And that's what my grandmother told me I should do because she knew me so well. And uh that started the process of, of saying, okay, I've, I've found my niche. I knew my sophomore year at OU, I found my niche. And I loved it. I, I absolutely, from the moment I got into design one and two, I just, that's what I knew I was supposed to do. Wow. So um, from a young age, I would say that my grandparents helped me. Uh, in college, I became a Christian in that I, I began to follow the example of Jesus Christ and to follow uh, what I believed him uh, to teach. And it wasn't just a belief that you go to church and you do the good things, but really what does it mean to follow Christ? And one of the things that really impacted me in my college years is that um, you should uh, take care of those that can't take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think there's a scripture reference that says, when you do it for the least of these, you do it for me. And that germinated in college, but it didn't manifest itself till later. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So college years were good years. I really enjoyed um, OU. I think the architecture school at OU was at its lowest point during the years I attended <laughs> because I, I graduated I think number one, according to Dean Hodgel, and I was going to say, if I was in any really big school, that would not have been the case. Anyway. Well, you, I mean, again, just you know, looking at where you are today, I, I, I think, uh, I think you were uh, far better than you uh, giving yourself credit and the program itself. And you know, you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, running with Bruce. You know, you two have been good friends for so long and it just reminds me of you know how important it is in life that, that you find partners that share yeah. the values that you do you know you know and, and you mentioned Mary Dell I mean talk a little bit about some of the partnerships whether it's Mary Dell or or Bruce or others in business that, that's great that you asked that um I met Mary Dell our junior year at OU and we married at the end of our senior year and then I stayed two more years to do the master's program. And so we became uh, newlyweds at 21, young. Uh, and, and we uh, both came from broken homes. And so we relied on each other to give ourselves kind of courage to kind of go through tough times. Uh, and so we bonded pretty quickly. What I realized is that Marydale was a very wise counselor uh, to me. And so I learned very quickly that before I did anything, I would get her counsel and whether to do it. And then very seldom would I do something that was contrary to what she would advise. And that started a kind of a relationship once we became more philanthropic, that rather than me getting on my horse and riding off and doing certain things, 
she she would be a part of that. And so it might be something I would initiate, but she would give me counsel and then buy into it. So uh, that being the case, I, we made a kind of a covenant between us that we would not invest in anything the other person didn't agree to. So That's beautiful. Um, and did you have uh, business partners when you, with your firm? Yeah. <clears throat> I, I had a good partner in Marydale. So for the first 25 years of the firm, I was a sole owner. I did not want partners until I could figure out how to be a good partner and a good leader. And what I realized is that uh, in the first 25 years, I had several guys that wanted to be partners, but I realized if I paid them well enough and gave them enough responsibility, that that would satisfy them rather than being true partners. What I realized is that partnership is not a reward. It's really a responsibility. And to be a good partner, I felt like uh, three things had to happen. One is you had to provide for the family, meaning you had to go be a rainmaker, go find the work. Mm -hmm. Secondly, you had to be a, a protector of the family, which meant that you had to protect the firm from bad clients, bad contractors, bad employees. Just be a, a, a warrior to take care of the firm. And then the third thing was you, you had to nurture the people. You had to love the people and develop the people because they're your your best and truly your only asset. And so uh, if you had those three components, it didn't have to be equal, but you had to have those three components. And then the partnership would be a conglomeration of strengths of each of those is when you put the team together, it becomes a very solid team. One guy might be better at uh, rainmaking, whereas the other guy might be really better at nurturing the staff. Mm -hmm. But if you bring on partners that don't develop business, shuck responsibilities when tough times come, they go hide under their desk. They're not mm -hmm. willing to stand up and help you, you know, fight bad contractors, lawsuits. Uh, one of the biggest things I found is that I would not allow a partner to hire someone if he was not willing to fire that same person. It's really mm -hmm. easy to hire people. It's awful to fire people. Yes. Now I said, you can't hire anyone if you're not willing to fire them. So we had a policy that if you hired that person, you were the one that was going to fire them if they didn't perform. Mm -hmm. And we had guys that couldn't do that. Yeah. We literally had people that loved to hire people, but boy, they wanted to be their friends. And they, boy, when it came time to do a layoff or they didn't perform, they, they would go hide. And so those weren't partners, you know, they were managers, but not partners. So, and then of course, you know, I, you know, the most important thing of any partner is to feed the family and if you can't find the work. You can't stay in business. And, I found that um, that was the most difficult thing uh, for some of the partners. They, they love to design, they love to manage, they love to be on the job, but you know, I don't know what it was, but they couldn't bring in work. So. That's uh, as a, as a architect, I'm enjoying this just as much as, as in my, in my Dean role here, <laughs> having the treat of, of learning from an alum. Do you remember, um, I just forgot his name. Um, I'm so embarrassed to forget his name. Much older than me. Uh, he was kind of flamboyant. He did medical work in Oklahoma City. Uh, Reese. Gosh, you oh, remember Frank. Reese? Frank Reese. Frank Reese. Yeah. Uh -huh. Frank Reese came our sixth year, did a seminar. He drove up in his Mercedes, and he was flamboyant at that time. I don't know. Is he still alive? Yes. Okay. He's well, if he hears boy. this, God bless him. So he had a great influence on me. He goes, he walks in the room. He's, he, he has a little swagger to him. Yeah. I just parked my 380 SL downstairs. You know why boys? Because I bring in the work. <laughs> he says, the most important thing is to bring in the work, bring in the work or bring in the work. He goes, everything else is secondary. And when Reese said that, I went, well, that sounds pretty harsh, but I thought, you know what, he's actually right. Yeah. And so uh, anyway, he says, yeah, that's why everybody else drives these Volvos and, <laughs> and you know, Fords. I drive a, I drive a Mercedes. So yeah. anyway, I, I, I'll never forget that. I, it definitely sounds like something I, I uh, Frank would say. Yeah. yeah. 
still today. Yeah. Uh, he's still feisty. But uh, yeah, so um, it did, uh, you know, I was just talking to Jerry Merriman uh, or emailing with him and I was excited yeah. to see that, that he's going to try and come to the dinner. Oh, perfect. Right. Yeah. And, and you, you probably know that, you know, that Debbie, you know, played a big role in his firm. Uh, was, did Mary Dell, was she in the office? Uh, well, at any I, stage or well, I know no, you also have a, um, Mary um, Dell always brags that she was my first secretary. And, and it was really true for the first couple of years. Um, she did a lot of, she helped me a lot. Um, we had, by the time I started my firm, we, we got married very early mm -hmm. and then we had children early. And so when I started my firm, I already had two children and, uh, and I started at 27. So I was pretty young uh, for a firm owner. And so she would answer the phone. Um, she would do some typing. Uh, and, uh, but she didn't do it at, at, um, she didn't do it down at my office. She did it at home and we used to have call forwarding, if you'll remember. So mm -hmm. when I was busy, I would call forward. She'd take messages and all that stuff. She'd do typing at night and help me with that stuff. She would proof stuff for me. Um, but she never worked physically in the office, even though for the first probably two years, she was my secretary. And, uh, you know, and, you know, one of the big problems that I think we as men have uh, is we we think what we do at work is so important. We come home and then we debrief our wives about all the ins and outs. And they're standing there holding two kids in diapers and trying to cook dinner. <laughs> you know, you're still thinking what you did was important. Hmm. and so she put up with a lot of crap <laughs> so, but she was a that. good advisor to me in certain yeah. things yeah. and then she would also help me interview the female staff the first couple secretaries I would hire and that was really helpful because she hmm. could get, get that womanly sense if this was going to be a good one or not and so uh, some of the first employees that I had uh, were women and still keeping in touch with a couple of them to this day because they're just good women, you know? Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. but no, she, she was never a, a, an official partner. Yeah. Now today we own uh, a company called R&M Sparrow company. Mm -hmm. It's an LLC and she is a 50% partner in that. And we do all our investing uh, in that. And she is truly a partner in that. And then as a, uh, in our foundation, she is one of the two board members. She and I are co-equal on, on our foundation, which, you know, by and large, that's 90% of everything we do today. We're truly business partners now. So no kids yeah. in diapers. She has plenty of time, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's what an amazing uh, story. And also amazing how the relationship has evolved over time. Uh, and it seems like there's just a very important theme that you guys have always been close, but it's the, the manner in which you've been close has, has evolved and shifted. And uh, any other uh, thoughts on partners? Well, we move I have uh, partnerships can be the best or the worst. And it doesn't appear to be an in-between for me. Um, <clears throat> I've had four business partners uh, in the architectural firm. The first two um, uh, were five years younger than me, but we were, you know, colleagues. I mean, there, there wasn't any difference. You could tell. But we became very close uh, friends. Uh, we, we became very close and working, had phenomenal respect for one another. We all had our own strengths. I would not send anything out that was not proofed by one of the partners, uh, whether it was a letter or a proposal or a problem. Uh, I always ran it by my partners. Um, we would get in a meeting and disagree, but we always came out of the meeting on the same team. Hmm. And we made that, uh, we made that decision early. So we never talked behind each other's back. Um, became, close, uh, had a 10 year relationship, uh, as partners, uh, 
halfway through that partnership, we brought on two younger guys, five years younger than those guys who were 10 years younger than me. That was by design. We wanted to stagger the ownership age so the firm could continue. Um, that partnership uh, didn't gel as well. And I, I could go into more detail, but it's not necessary. Suffices to say, uh, the two youngest partners are guys that I've developed, had worked for us for 15 years, very sharp. Um, but the, the, um, my other two partners were not as fond of them as I was. So what I really wanted to have happen is my first two partners picked their two partners. And then I bail out the back door because I'm now the old guy. And, and then they work together. And then they do that same repetitive pattern in future subsequent years if they can. And it never gelled between the two younger guys with the older guys. To some degree, and this sounds harsh, but it's, I'll be real honest if you won't print this. I will tell you that <clears throat> when I, when I uh, start slowing down in the firm, having sold my ownership, to the two young guys, the two middle guys began to slow down too. And that was never the intent. The intent was you work your tail off until you get them established. And then once they get established, they can find their two new partners or three partners or whatever, and then you can slow down. So they prematurely pumped the brakes. That caused a rift with the younger guys who are rolling very hard in the back. And, uh, and I kept telling the guys, I said, you guys have got to work as hard as I worked for you to pay me off and to, to own this firm. And it just, it didn't work out as well. I also realized that I still was the leader of the firm. Even though I had partners, they still looked to me as being the leader, even though I was selling my shares. And even though I promoted and encouraged and even you know, refuse to do some things in leadership to make them do things. Uh, sometimes it doesn't take. And so I was still, I, I look back on, I was still the leader of the firm, even though the other guys own more shares than I did. How you make that transition is a subject of a book I haven't read yet. So anyway. <laughs> That's a great, uh, great. So uh, in which firms did you work? This is maybe a three-part uh, in which firms did you work before the age of 27 when you went out on your own? What kind of leadership structures did they have? And what did you learn from those firms? The first firm I worked for was a, just a summer internship in South Carolina in Myrtle Beach. A very small practice, really enjoyed the guys. I just went out there because I wanted to be on the beach. The second firm was uh, Loftus Bell and Downing. And that was, you know, of course, at the time, I felt like between Ross Bell and Jim Loftus and Dave Downing, it was the best firm in, in the city. So I worked for them for a, a couple of years uh, while I was still in school. But <clears throat> I worked a lot. I worked, you know, I worked the preceptorship program. So I laid out a semester. I worked um, uh, holidays and summers and really learned a lot from Jim and from Ross. I learned how to render from Ross. I learned how to design from Jim. And I learned how to put together projects. And uh, Dave Downing kind of taught me the principles of spec writing. So I got really good experience even before I graduated. I was a graduate assistant for two years at OU, so that helped. Uh, just, you know, and, and, you know, to my surprise, I was actually the the teacher for design level two my senior year, which was scary. I was the only guy in the class. Um, when I came to Dallas, I wanted to work for the best firms because I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to be a really great designer. That was kind of my hope. So I went to work uh, for uh, what is now known as GFF. Uh, it was originally Larry Good, Duncan Fulton. Yeah, good for those guys. Yeah. yeah, great firm, uh, still doing really well in Dallas. So I went to work for them and then they hit, it was during a recession and they did not lay me off, but I sensed that times are really tough. And so I got an offer from Corgan Associates. And so I went to Corgan 
and uh, joined them, was there uh, a couple of years and worked were all the way some, up. Were there some OU alums there that were um, hiring you? Not, not at that time. Okay. They, they were OSU boys. Ouch. Yeah. Uh, I know, but you know, they were good. So um, an interesting fact is that um, Mr. Corgan actually knew my step-grandfather, which was, they must have flown in the army or something together. Anyway, I, kind of, I didn't get in because of that relationship, but once I got there, I, I was kind of the, the lucky guy because Mr. Corgan Sr., the old man, always let me do the fun projects with him. And so I got to do some really fun projects with him for uh, a couple of years. Uh, I got to do things way over my head. I mean, I was designing grade schools, you know, when I was 25 years old. It was crazy. Um, they were growing like crazy. I, grew, I was there when there were 19 of us. And now, of course, there are 300. Um, and um, just, you know, I just, I work day and night. I, I, I can't tell you how I, I work till three in the morning, many nights. And mm -hmm you know, enjoyed it. I loved it. I mean, it was just like, like I was on adrenaline. Um, and then, uh, but I wasn't making a very good living. They were pretty stingy actually. So, uh, <laughs> a friend of mine said, Hey, why don't you come over to uh, a firm called HKCP, which was originally, uh, H the, the two design partners of HKS left and started their own firm. And so my bosses were really the head guys at HKS and they started another firm. We did a lot of really good work. Uh, we did the Dallas city hall with IM pay. We were the, actually wow. the architects just use IM pay as, as mm -hmm. the design architect. Yeah. Um, did almost all of North Texas uh, universities, buildings, um, did most of Parkland Wow. hospital work, um, wow. did a lot of Texas A&M work. They were really mm -hmm. college architects. Mm -hmm. And so I got a lot of really good experience. And so I was getting a little big for my britches. And so I went in and asked them, I said, what does it take for me to be a partner with you guys? <laughs> and they said, you're too young. I said, well, I, I just like to be your junior partner. I just, you know, I just want to have a place to, to build my firm, you know, build up. And yeah. They were older guys, of course. They're probably mid fifties by that time, sixties. And the firm was booming. We were doing lots of work, and uh, I just left. I I resigned and started my own firm. Didn't really have any projects, but I went out and hustled. I'd made a lot of friends during those four years with all the clients I had. I always made sure they felt like I was their architect. So. I was able to wrestle some work pretty quickly. Wow. That's a great history. And it's stunning that that, that only takes us up to the age of 27, right? I mean, <laughs> you had like, it was a dense meal of, of, yeah. of work experience there. Yeah. Um, I was, I think I put in uh, extra, I, I feel like I was about 30, 35 years old by that time. And I, I had really worked a lot of hours. Yeah. I was working hard. So, yeah. Yeah, one of these days uh, I'll, I'll share my stories. So, you know, you mentioned here the, uh, you know, the clients that you had while working in other firms and, and you know, really trying to build a relationship, build trust and so forth. Share a little bit, if you would, uh, about what are those skills that, that make a difference, you know, when you practice as an architect or a community leader listening, collaboration, things like that. Talk, if, elaborate a little bit more if you would. Well, th there are several things that come to mind. I had the philosophy, uh, going back to Frank Reese, that uh, developing work was very important. So everyone I met would um, qualify as a potential client because I feel like everyone needs an architect. So I would try to approach people not to get something out of them necessarily, but was there some way I could help him? I met a guy on an airplane one time and he was a developer and struck up a conversation. Next thing I know, I designed a house for him. I meet someone and they have a church. I said, well, is your church going to do a building program? Well, yeah. Would you like to be on the list? And I'd go interview for the church. So I always had my nose to the ground about who would need architectural services. 
every client that I worked under, uh, under another firm, I would take really good care of whoever those people were. And I would give them what they needed. I would, I would try to become actually very good friends with them. And when I did start my firm, uh, we were doing uh, quite a bit of AT&T work. And it was because I had developed such good relationships with people at AT&T while I was working for Corrigan. And I got some churches to do because when I worked at uh, HKCP, the, the former firm of HKS, I had met those people through doing churches for HKS and the, and the building committee people would refer me to another church or something. And so I always treated the client as my own. And, you know, it caused a lot of uh, anxiety because I, I worried all the time, but it paid off. I also realized that friendships are very important in this process. And uh, the way I got the Walmart account was unusual because I still left the firm. Uh, my last firm that I left, I left it on good terms. And they funneled a lot of uh, interview referrals to me. If they didn't want to mess with it, they said, well, just send over to Raymond and see what he can do with it. So I, mm-hmm. I got some churches out of it. I got some really scuzzy work out of it. Uh, one of the scuzzy projects they sent over was a little building addition to a Walmart store they didn't want to mess with. And so um, I did that. And that started my relationship with the contractor who had good relationship with Walmart. And over the next two years, I finally got the Walmart account as a 28-year-old guy. <laughs> so, That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. It was it was pretty fun. I look back on that now. I said, I don't know if I could do that. Knowing what I know now, I don't know why I did that. I mean, but I'm glad I didn't know better. Anyway. And so how many years from there on out were you were doing Walmart related? That projects? was starting in 84. I would say it was 26 years, 20, uh, 30, 36 years of work. Yeah. In fact, uh, just as a sidebar, uh, last weekend, I had dinner with the guy that hired me for that first job at Walmart has retired. He was passed through town. He and his wife came by and said, you want to go to Papa Do's? And so Mary Dell and I went to Papa Do's with my first client. <laughs> He's totally that retired, is. you know, still has a friendship with him. So, yeah, that's you know. amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and, so- and that that one phone call of being willing to do anything and Honestly, Hans, it was it was a yucky project. It wasn't something you kind of it was just a yucky little addition. But you know, that along with doing more and more and more resulted in eight thousand project numbers for Walmart over those years. You know, some of them were garden centers, some of them were multi-stories, you know, big, huge projects, some of them were just a remodel or you know, auto center, gas station, whatever it was. But I don't know. We I think we built about 90 to 95 percent of the SAMs built while we were doing their work and probably 10 percent of the new stores and 50 percent of the remodels. Amazing. It's crazy. It's we did so much work for them. It was like it was crazy. People say, well, you're putting all your eggs in one basket. I said, well, I can't help it. I can't even hold on to the reins of the horse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, talking about uh, clients and serving clients and serving communities, right? Much of what you are working on today uh, at a very different scale, of a different nature. You've been a, made a huge impact or commitment almost 10 years ago to Gibbs College, spread out over four years to, you know, give uh, special architecture and planning students an opportunity to uh, spend some time in Africa. First time in your office to learn a little bit, right? Get the overview but then to go to Africa and specifically Zambia to become a partner, right? To immerse in a culture that these students have never understood before. And, and I was an observer when all that was initially happening. And I just couldn't have, help thinking back to my own experiences in life and the travel and, and how that traveling helped me learn to listen to others and mm-hmm. to, and to cherish others perspectives and, and I firmly believe that, that my experiences in traveling and experiencing cultures and across oceans have made me not only a better person, but a better architect. Yes. Right. And, and so that, that privilege that you and Mary Dell established through those four years of supporting planning architecture students in Zambia, 
we know, we know for a fact that you changed the life of some emerging architects and planners who are out there today. Mm. Talk a little bit about what motivated you and Mary Dell to, to make that gift or the series of gifts and, you know, and how that ties back to your, your, your values. Well, it's, I will say this, it's one of the best gifts that we, uh, we've invested in. One of the, well, I should, I, one of the best gifts, but it's one of the best things we've invested in, I think. It, it started with uh, Dean Graham coming to our office in Dallas to raise money for the renovation of uh, Gould Hall. And I kind of made a quip that, you know, Dean, I'm, I'm an architect. Mary Dell and I don't typically invest in buildings. We don't, we won't want to give money to churches or colleges to have our names put on something. We just mm-hmm. don't build bricks and mortar. I said, what we like to do is build soft projects that really, really help build God's kingdom. And so I said, what would you think about coming up with a program where we could say giving you money to renovate uh, Gould Hall about doing a study abroad or something. I said, I go to Zambia a lot because we're involved with orphans over there. And I think it'd be a wonderful opportunity for the students to see what the 90% of the world really lives like yeah. instead of the 10% that we live in. And uh, of course, I think uh, Charles was very empathetic to that. I think he had done a lot of that kind of work in his past. And so uh, we didn't know what it looked like, but I did have relationships in Zambia. I had a place to take them. I had a project to do, and we'd been quite involved in this um, project with the, the orphans over there. And so we were already uh, working on that project as a firm on a pro bono basis. And so I thought it was, you know, it was a natural, easy thing to do, safe, you know, Zambia is safe to be. Mm-hmm. And um, so it just seemed to be a real natural thing. Mary Dell and I were already investing in things overseas. We had already invested in the honey business and several other things. Uh, so we were comfortable traveling overseas, been to numerous African countries. I'd been around the world traveling a lot of places. And so it just was really a kind of an easy, fun, natural thing. And one of my favorite things. So, yeah. And, you know, we, uh, Chris Lee, whom you probably remember, yep. uh, was yep. one of the many students who, who went to Zambia, but he, you know, he went back a second time, right? So once, once wasn't enough for him. Um, but what's impressive when we look at Chris as an example of, of a student who was so moved and impacted by that, that opportunity that you and Mary Dell afforded him, you know, he's now come back to us here at the college and, is you know helping us brainstorm in architecture and planning about you know creating opportunities for students in uh, in a field that he's really digging more into in terms of planning and aviation design. But you know when I spoke to him a few weeks ago, you know he he remarked that you know the college did so much for him and uh, invested in him that the example that the college set there is is one that he wants to now find his own voice. And, and start to give back to the students and the programs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, you know, I highlight that as an example of, of again, you know, one of the great benefits to um, our students because of that opportunity with Zambia and the, the payback, so to speak, right? The paying forward, mm-hmm. it's already happening within 10 years, mm-hmm. right? So that's a pretty good mm-hmm. return, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? But talk a bit more about, you know, you've, you would continue to, to be in Zambia and working with orphan groups in particular uh, who saw the students, met the students. Well, talk a little bit about the benefits that you saw that they experienced from having students come and visit with them and talking about the planning and design of, of that expanding facility there. Well, I, I think, I, I just think it was a wonderful program on, on several levels. Um, it was on the faculty level, I thought it was really good for Tom and David and um, uh, Harris and me. Mm-hmm. And I think there's six of us. But anyway, mm-hmm. it, it was interesting as a group of professionals and professors to go to be shocked, to go there and be mm-hmm. shocked at what we yeah. saw. Mm-hmm. That was I thought that was really cool. Yeah. And then when we took the kids over, I thought it was really good 
for them to be shocked. Now, you know, to, to say, uh, you know, streets aren't paved over here and, you know, people walking down the street with water on their head and, you know, and there's slums and it's just tough. And I thought it was really good for them to see what poverty looked like and what mm. the majority of the true world lives in poverty. And um, going to Europe and uh, studying in France and all that stuff, I think is extremely valuable. But I think you, um, if you only do that and then you come back and practice, then you, you practice for the 10%. Mm. And I'm, I'm really interested in serving those that, that can't take care of themselves. And mm-hmm. it doesn't take much. The technology is not critical, even though, um, I mean, they're living at a level that they lived a hundred years ago. I mean, it's yeah. just simple and, uh, you, we have to design around simple. And, uh, yeah. so to, to get them over there and not to, not to be able to have butt glaze gla- glazing and sheetrock and, you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's, I thought it was really good. I'll, I'll tell you a little funny thing. When The first time I went to Zambia I, I, to look at this project that we had committed to do, I got off the plane. I had, you know, I felt so powerful. I thought I was so knowledgeable. I was an experienced architect, had, had experience, had money, I had time. And I got off the plane and thought I had a lot to offer. And after being there for about a week, I realized that I really didn't know what I was talking about because there were only about five different building materials that were really available to build stuff from. Mm -hmm. So sheetrock was not one of them. Wood studs were not available. And, you know, uh, all the things I think of in housing didn't exist. And so I I went, oh, I got to redefine the building materials, figure out what the building materials are, and then redefine the design. So I rolled up my plans and took them back to Dallas and said, we got to start over. I realized the longer I'm there, the less I know. <laughs> you know? And yeah. Poverty is very difficult to solve. I think it's probably one of the most difficult problems in humanity mm-hmm. because we think, well, if we'll just do this, it'll get them out of poverty. And the government, all, governments around the world do that all the time. And we still have poverty. Why do we still have poverty? Lyndon Johnson said, we won't have poverty in 20 years if we do this program in the 60s we still have poverty so my my thought is it's wonderful to be exposed to things that make you uncomfortable and then you got to think through them how do you solve that problem i think taking uh, young students over there will get them out of their little cocoon of mm-hmm. fancy design and say well how do you yeah. design uh, get back to the very very basics of design right. and then recomplicate it later yeah well, you you've you definitely you've you completely changed my mindset a few minutes ago, you know, with that positioning of why a, a program like, let's say Zambia, and there are many other places in the world. I'm gonna guess you're gonna agree that, that do a much more effective job help preparing us to to design for the ninety percent as opposed mm-hmm. to the ten percent, right? Design for the ten percent is easy, right? Yeah. It's not hard. Well, it's fun. Right. But, but yeah, the, but so, uh, I, you know, I'm going to take this with me positioning that you've just uh, offered me about, yeah, how we need to be more critical about what we're offering our students as that travel study opportunity, right? What, what kind of uh, challenges, what kind of limits, right? Will it present our students that will uh, define their careers and hopefully take them on a a trajectory towards serving the 90% and less about the 10%. Yeah, that's, that's what I've, I remember there was a, one morning I was working uh, in the firm and I was still uh, early years. I think it was 1986. If I remember my date, right. I'd been in on my own for three years and I'm sitting at my desk and I'm there by myself down at the office. It's about three o'clock in the morning. And I literally, was just kind of crying. I said, this is so hard. This is just, I'm by myself. I'm figuring out the details. Um, uh, This is hard. And I said, I'm going to do this. This client's going to build this house or whatever I was working on. And I'm about to go out next week and go find another client. And I'm going to go through this whole thing again. And it was back in the days I really wanted to be a good designer. You know, I'd, I'd worked for really good firms and 
I've been trained by the best. And so I wanted to be this, come up with innovative design. I wanted to be in record. I wanted to, you know, I wanted AIA to say I was great. And I really, uh, at that moment had an epiphany. I think it was God saying to me, I don't want you to be a great designer. I want you to be great at serving others and let the others be great designers. Mm. And so it changed my philosophy of, of who I pursued as clients. And so I became more service oriented than I was design oriented because I was really chasing after design projects and not that that's bad. I, I mean, I loved it. I still love it. I, my philosophy, I had it written down. My philosophy was there was no project too small that couldn't win an award. Mm. And so mm. every project was a design project and mm. no matter how simple. Mm-hmm. And I carried that philosophy over into Africa a little bit. I said, guys, we could design this stuff and win awards because of the simplicity, you know. But it changed my heart to be a good employer rather than being a good designer. And because mm-hmm. I became uh, a good employer, I was able to employ people <laughs> and didn't leave. Yeah. <laughs> so right. then we got more done right. and then we got more work and it just kind of snowballed. So um, that was an epiphany I had that changed the trajectory of right. my pursuits yeah yeah uh, and when it's consistent with you know serving right yeah um and it's and you know and i'm also reminded of your honey business and uh the tilapia farm right it's teaching yeah. people how to fish yeah. um uh, you know it's preparing them uh, to do more with what they have i appreciate uh all your feedback so far i you know uh, there's so many uh, chapters you've just outlined for us that could be um, novels in and of themselves, really. Um, you know, what's funny is that throughout this uh, conversation, I never asked you, what what were your degrees and when did you graduate? Uh, I graduated you? 77. I got a BSED. And at the time, they still had the B-Arch, but it was not promoted. It was a 4-2 is what they were really promoting. Yeah. So I got a BSED and then I stayed to get a MArch. Yeah. But I took all the classes so I could get my BArch as well. Okay. So I got all three degrees. Oh, no um, kidding. Yeah, I got a uh, BSED, a BArch, and an MArch all in that six-year period. All my class, I just aligned up my classes so I could fulfill all the requirements. Yeah. And, I'm not surprised and, that you figured out that. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to, you know, the funny thing is then I worked a lot. And yeah. so I was able to take the design exam a year out of school because oh, I had yeah. all my, so I got registered in 81. I graduated in 79, took the exam in 80 and was registered in March of 81. And that was literally two years out of school. So I was already registered. All right. So that's impressive. That, um, and, that and uh, three fifteen will get you a tall at Starbucks. By the way, <laughs> anything uh, anything you want to share at the moment, Ray? That we didn't cover. I think I think one thing is interesting is that I I could take credit for my uh, success, but I have a real real strong feeling that God God had given me the abilities to do what I did. So it's not my good looks or talent. I think he gave me the ability to generate income, which uh, was giving me the opportunity to do other things. Mm-hmm. And I would say I'm a self-made man, but I realized that's actually not true. Just as I could not be Steve Jobs if I started my computer company in my garage, it's a giftedness. And, and so God, God gave me what I have, but I also stand to have to use it well. And so my concern is that I use the profit uh, that I generate through this firm so that if I stand before him, he would be very pleased. And so it gives me an unction to, uh, or a, an impetus, I should say, to develop what I call economic engines to, mm-hmm. to build God's kingdom. Yeah. You know, we do it through honey, do it through movies. I've invested in young men starting uh, young. Uh, I just invested in a young OU grad. Uh, starting a construction company in Dallas. So I, oh, I was his capital and um, he went through the COSI program and I'm investing in guys like that because I, I'm not so suspended all myself. If I am, I become a fat glutton, but 
two, when you build other things with it, it just, your whole, your whole economy expands, everything gets bigger. And so it's just fun to have, uh, to, to reinvest that capital, build other things. And I enjoy building things relationally, not just because I'm smart and say, oh, this is a good, you know, I've done a strategic plan and this looks like this is a hot topic. You know, I, I couldn't do that. I, it's just relationship. You meet the right person, you like them, you invest in them. And so um, I, we started a goat business in Africa and that's, I'm going to go over in March and help a new partner on that. And, you know, that's a totally different than honey. And, but it's kind of in the same area as, uh, as the other work we've done. So we, we piggyback on those economies. And so, you know, the investments are, are interesting. Invested in a jewelry company in China and uh, just different things. I, 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 but they all have to basically funnel back down. At some point, the investment has to help the poor, mm-hmm. either through employment, through benefit, through services, through mm-hmm. something. Yep. And that's yep. that. That's what gives me the joy is is helping. But yeah, you know, shoot, I want to I want to do stuff that makes money. I don't want to just give money away and then mm-hmm. it's gone. So yeah. anyway, makes sense. Well, thank you. You're welcome. This is fun. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's been great, Ray. Uh, any anything else from anyone else uh, here in the in their conversation? Ray, I just have one quick question. Um, so, if you had a minute to to give some advice to uh, an architecture student in Gibbs College, what what would two or three sentences be? I would be a very unpopular speaker there. But I would, I would tell them to come in early to make up for staying late. <laughs> um, I would say figure out what you like to do. Figure out what you're good at doing. Because if you have joy in what you do, it will not, never be a job. And so I would ask them to do an evaluation. Of what are they good at doing? What do they like doing? And then just work their butt off doing it. And eventually they'll develop the skills to be good at what they're doing. And then that will circle back, give them greater joy. Mm. That joy will propel them to work hard. And so it becomes a flywheel. Mm. And I just absolutely loved architecture school. And uh, one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite memories was when uh, our sixth year would be our last year in graduate school. Hodgel was still there as the dean, and he let us have a classroom to ourselves, all those six-year guys and gals. And so we just set up tables in a room and had our own lock to it and everything. And we just kind of pretended like we were an architectural firm, and we just did all kind. Of, we'd, you know, we'd just play music loud and you know have the coffee pot on, but we actually operated as a firm. And what is so interesting about that almost every person in our little group became farm owners at some point and so uh, and bruce was one of those um dave beck was up there well you can ask dave about it. we had a, we had a great time so yeah uh hornbeak was one of our guys we i don't know we had probably 10 of us up there and we just had our own little firm up there wouldn't let the little kids come in <laughs> <laughs> so anyway that's great good lessons here i love experiential learning you know um and i think you know one of the pillars of gibbs college is to to do experiential programs you know i mean building community is one of the things so i think it's really important that they hear from you Rain, because you have built community and not just in america but yeah well you know, if there's interest, you know, I could put together another small program to go back to Zambia. Uh, I know all those people well. Um, you know, I would like what I'd like to do is take them up north near the Congo where we're doing all of our agricultural projects. You know, they can go as architects. They can go as planners. It doesn't matter. But just to experience that, we could do another, you know, maybe a shorter term trip. Maybe it's a, a 10 day trip. Maybe it's a spring break trip. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I'd be willing to 
talked to Mary Dell about that, supporting that and getting it off the ground. And it would blow them away what they'd see. You know, where our goat business is interesting. Our honey business is still going nuts. And we, we did a lot of agricultural projects up there. A lot of them didn't work. You know, the tilapia business, it didn't work as well as we thought. So we just started raising the baby fish, the fingerlings instead of the, the big fish. And that's what we figured out would work. So Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've been thinking about this a little bit. I, you know, I might be interested in funding a, another swatch of something like that that would be kind of cool. And, you know, I don't want any credit. I don't want any fanfare. I, you know, I just like it. So it's just part. It's, it's just another project, Hans. Just another project. Yeah, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Yeah, I so, mean, you know, let's, I mean, I think we, let's definitely talk more about this, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, I mean, we might have planned out. Uh, year after next or next year i don't know but different faculty is great i love dave i love you know he knows the country well um mario zanster still there in country who ran the orphanage but i'm not so interested in just going back to the orphanage i'd like to see them something else show them something else Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um we might throw in a vic falls type of fun thing too wow wow Wow. yeah Yeah. you might you might you might have have david livingston Yeah, I think it's at Victoria Falls uh, in uh, September. Wow. Oh, you are. Yeah. Okay. I stood on the top. Then we then we did a boat trip, so we get to I got to see both levels of the. Oh wow! Did you see alligators down there? We saw many. (laughs) Don't bungee jump. No, there was no swimming. Yeah, well, but you know, I don't know. I don't know if it'd work, but I know Africa pretty well. I can't take you other places because I just I'm not familiar with them. But you know, uh, I mean, I can take you to Dubai. I like that. <laughs> so uh, you know, in terms of uh, you know this, this, the conversation here of you know what you've been interested in, I think so much of this conversation today over the last hour or so, uh, I think has been helpful also in. in conceptualizing what could also be a framework for future trips. Like what are the, what are the goals? What are the values? What are the, you know, the mean, right. uh, So that it's less about the place. Right. Because we don't do it it anywhere. Yeah, exactly. Right. That there's a need, right. The 90% (laughs) they're all around us. Right. And so, you know, would you be willing to kind of, uh, be part of kind of a, a back and forth and creating, you know, kind of defining what are those, what are the goals, right? And so that depending on what faculty is here in 10 years or in 20 years, right? You know, it's not dependent on that individual. So, or, you know, like it, a different place could, right. could meet your vision, right? Does that make sense? I think it is. I think the framework is important. I think you still have to have the relation. You still have to have the relationships to do in country stuff. I think it's hard mm-hmm. to show up not having relationships. Mm-hmm. So whatever that faculty member would be, I mean, like John, John would have relationships in Uganda that I don't have right. or yeah. wherever, but whoever has a, a relationship somewhere could facilitate that. And you just take the template. Right. But I, I just think relationships are are going to be the critical okay. thing of, of destination. Yeah, now, I, would love a... to, I would love to see kids go to China. Uh, I've been to China and I, I was just fascinated by China, but uh, I don't have relationships any longer in China. They've, they've mm-hmm. left because of the situation. Mm-hmm. I do have one person there that we started a, a, a jewelry company there. And, um, but it's really difficult. It's, mm-hmm. they can't get out. Because mm-hmm. I can't get back in. Yeah. And so uh, I do have a, a, a fairly good relationship in Bangladesh, mm-hmm. which would be an interesting place. And uh, Thailand, I have good relationships. Um, and of course, Central Africa. Uh, I have nobody I know in Europe or in India or... How about South America, South Central America? You know, I have a friend, a pretty good friend in Recife, which is Brazil. Mm-hmm. Sao Paulo, I have people I know, but that's dangerous. Yeah, just as uh, you know, you you know, through John, right? We've gotten to know the Uganda uh, yeah. uh, emphasis. Well, we, you know, the university just you know hired a new, uh, recently hired a new vice president for research, and you know, he he's brings a very strong South American, Central American perspective to the university, and 
He has many relationships in Peru. And so we've got actually a construction science group uh, going to Peru Good. this uh, spring, summer, and they're going to try and build something. But conversations that we've had is, you know, where can we build relationships that over time, right? So that I think it's to your point, Ray, tell me if I'm wrong, but it's, you know, so that there's a trust so that you know, you're truly serving, right? Because you're getting to know these people and they're getting to know you and they're teaching you what works for them. And then you see how you can plug in. Yeah. I think we're pretty solid in, in Zambia. I can wiggle and get that done if we ever want to go back. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just don't, I'm a little nervous of, uh, Kenya just because uh-huh. of Nairobi. Right. Um, and then I would say Ethiopia would have been easy. I have friends there that would get, but that's a little tentative right now as well. Yeah. So, and then that's I wouldn't good. go North of that. I just think mm-hmm. it's, I, I was in Egypt last year and I was in Cairo and I said, can I go out for a walk or a run? The guy says, no, 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 don't leave the hotel. Yeah. He says, well, yeah, I said, well, is it that dangerous? And the, it was a local guy who goes, yes, it's that dangerous. Don't leave the hotel. Oh, my word. So yeah. now we did with local people that picked us up in their cars and we left. Mm-hmm. But for a guy like me, just go do a jog or walk mm-hmm. down the street. Mm-hmm. He said, don't do that. You know, mm-hmm. I was always with two or three locals with me the whole time. And my philosophy is I don't leave the airports anymore without someone picking me up. I don't get mm. in a cab. <laughs> okay. Well, All I right. can't wait to see you in a couple of weeks. Yes, sir. All right. All right. Great. See ya. See you next week. Okay. Thanks so much. Bye bye. Thanks again for listening to the Gibbs Spotlight. Tune in next time to hear more stories from the Gibbs College of Architecture.